I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Parallax News listeners, as you can tell, we've got some surf rock playing for you. I thought I'd use it to set the mood for this edition of Parallax Views because we're talking with Fred Olin Ray, the legendary indie director, about his new movie, Just in Time, for the 4th of July, the latest effort from Charles Band's horror sci-fi fantasy factory, Full Moon Features. It's Piranha Women. Don't get them wet. They just might bite. If you're unfamiliar with Fred Olin Ray, he is a legend within the world of truly independent filmmaking. Someone who doesn't just treat film as a hobby, but as a job. He is a working filmmaker, a working class filmmaker, who has survived outside the studio system for decades now, making everything from Hallmark Christmas movies with Chevy Chase to Lifetime movie thrillers. And of course, cult movie aficionados will be familiar with his genre films such as Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Evil Tunes, Alienator, Beverly Hills Vamp, Biohazard, Witch Academy, Bad Girls from Mars, and countless others, too numerous to name. I'm not kidding, he is a true workhorse, and he's worked with such notable actors as Sybil Danning, Martin Landau, Ice-T, Morgan Fairchild, Sid Haig, 
John Carradine and his son David Carradine, Don the Dragon Wilson, Cameron Mitchell, Aldo Ray, Twin Peaks Russ Tamblin, and many, many others. Additionally, Fred alongside David Ducato and Jim Wynorski played a pivotal role in the Scream Queens horror cycle of the 1980s, starring such actresses as Linnea Quigley and Brink Stevens. In other words, Fred Olin Ray is someone who has really seen and done it all in the world of independent filmmaking, and we'll be talking about the secrets of his successful career, the craft of filmmaking, and his new movie, Piranha Women, in this fascinating conversation that should give you an insight into how independent movies are made. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it with Fred Olin Ray, director of Piranha Women, a movie with beautiful but deadly fish women and their killer tatas. I mean, literally, they're killers. They have teeth. It is the most dangerous secret weapon in the world. Cyclone, the ultimate weapon on two wheels. A genius created it. Rick was involved in a very important military project. Everyone's after it. I'm told you have something I want. Only one woman controls it. Cyclone. Starring Heather Thomas and Martin Landau. Cyclone. Prepare for the ride of your life. It'll blow you away. No! Cyclone. The ultimate team of woman and machine. Welcome to Parallax Views, one of my favorite uh, truly independent filmmakers out there today. Uh, he's been directing independent cinema for a number of decades now, uh, making some of my favorite uh, little movies like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Evil Tunes, and many others. Fred Olin Ray, director of the new Full Moon Features, Piranha Women. How are you doing today? Excellent. Yourself? Very good, very good. And I got a chance to view both episodes of Piranha Women, and I think it's interesting because it's a bit of a return to uh, the horror genre for you. You know, you started out with films like The Alien Dead and Brain Leeches and The Tomb. And uh, you've been working on a lot of TV features lately, uh, Christmas movies for Hallmark and thrillers for Lifetime. So what was it like to go back to the horror genre? Well, that's kind of one of the reasons I did it is... Um, because I hadn't, you know, the, the, I kind of flow where the market goes. And there's no big market, or there hasn't been, for that type of film for me. Uh, and so I've always just kind of gone where the paycheck is. So when the opportunity came up to do something, uh, I kind of I jumped at it. I wanted to go back to L.A. and see some of my friends. And um, I wasn't busy right then. So it's, it sounded like a good thing to do. And um, so we went for it. So 
Charles Band is a really interesting figure to me and, and Full Moon Features in general is interesting to me because I, I feel like Charles Band is almost like a, a man out of time in some ways. He reminds me of, um, you know, like an old uh, carnival type figure, you know, e even with his like road shows. Uh, what was it like working with Charles? And you've also done another film with him, I think from 2000, Sideshow, right? Yes, that's, that's right. You know, Charlie's, he's got a unique talent uh, in that he's able to do what nobody else can do. I mean, that's why I haven't done a bunch of horror films and stuff is because nobody's really doing them. And he has, in his own way, figured out how to make the films that he wants to make and reach the audience that he wants to reach. And I, I always said that he makes the kind of films that I wish I was making. But there's there's really, apparently, it looks like there's only room for Charlie. I mean, because I don't see anybody else uh, doing what he's doing uh, with the success that he has in doing it. I was going to say, too, he's sort of a, he's a promotional master in a lot of ways. He really knows how to promote uh, Full Moon as like a brand. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you, because you've survived in uh, the sort of indie film world for a long time, how do you sort of go about promoting films and, and what do you think of the way Full Moon has uh, promoted movies over the years? Well, I think, that, like you said, I, I think they're a master uh, at promoting their films. And uh, while Piranha Women, you know, might be seen as probably something along the more minor lines of what I've been doing in the last decade, it's certainly one of the films that's gotten the, the most attention and, and been hyped and, uh, you know, they, they seem to really truly love uh, their product. And I always used to complain that the producers I worked for didn't love their own children. And, uh, and I, I think it's just the opposite there. Charlie and those guys, they love what they're doing. They love promoting it. The posters are great. Uh, and they're making a crazy kind of product. But you're right. I think promoting these things is is half the battle uh, for them. And it's cool that somebody's actually willing to uh, to go to bat for these little movies, because in the television movie world, nobody cares and nobody cares who the director is or who wrote it. Um, you know, that's not to say there's not money there because there is. Uh, and it's 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 good money, uh, but the there's there's not the same sense of fun. There's not that element of fun or excitement about doing them that you would have, you know, doing you know trancers or puppet master or something like that. If you're a fan, you know. Definitely, definitely. And I, I'm just curious. So, I, I guess. Uh... This is one of those movies that, you know, you, you watch the credits and it says uh, based on an idea, an original idea by Charles Band and then written by Fred Olin Ray. So uh, did Charles come to you and say, hey, do you want to do another movie for Full Moon or how did it sort of come together? Well, we talked um, about how many films he had to make in a year and it was a sizable number. And I kind of pitched him a giant woman show because I had done one for Roger Corman. And I had always wanted to do something like that for Cinemax back when we were producing all those Cinemax movies. But we never had the budget and it took a certain amount of time. If you want to do the giant woman stuff right, you know, it takes a bit of effort. And uh, he was down for it. 
but I didn't feel like the budget uh, would, uh, would allow me to deliver at the, the level that I wanted to, because I was afraid that because I'd made the Roger Corman giant woman movie, that people would expect the same thing. And I knew I couldn't deliver. So I said, listen, maybe this isn't the one for me. And I think Jim Wynorski came on and he did it. And so then after that, Charlie said, well, let me come back to you and I'll come back to you. And he came back and he said, I have a poster for the greatest 1980s movie I never made. And he sent me the poster. And uh, they kind of said, you know, see what you come up with. And it'd be nice if there was a scene in the movie somewhere that looked something like the poster. So, I mean, that was the sort of extent of the idea. And um, I, I approached the script with, with pretty much freedom to do what I wanted. So I took the approach of uh, the old Night Stalker TV series with uh, Darren McGavin, in that if you watch that show, whatever the creature of the week was, usually didn't speak. And we didn't really know where it was between the times that it would show up and kill somebody. It was really more about Darren McGavin trying to put all the pieces together. So that's where I that's where I went at it. I tried to make a movie that was similar to a Night Stalker episode centered around a young guy whose girlfriend fell in with this sort of alligator people uh, sort of uh, medical treatment. So that's how it, that's how it came about. Were there any um, movies that you were sort of calling back to while making this one? Uh, because I, I was reminded uh, throughout watching it of um, you know certain like '80s movies, uh, there was one with um, Bobby Breesy and uh, Marjo Gortner called uh, Mausoleum, which famously had killer demon boobies. And uh, th there's some uh, similar things in this movie. And also, I noticed uh, a, a little bit of overlap with maybe Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Were there any movies that maybe influenced this one? Well, you know, I, I wasn't aware of another film with a. Uh, a monster tits, if I can say that word on your show. Yeah. Um, someone pointed out that uh, Greg Lamberson had made a movie called Killer Rack, which uh, I probably did see, but I don't remember it. And I didn't see Mausoleum. I was trying to come up with something that would be uh, different, that maybe people would talk about. And uh, so I was trying to find something that was kind of outrageous that uh, that we could do that would make what is basically a very low budget show sort of stand out, you know, on its on its own. Uh, I definitely was influenced by the alligator people. In fact, the doctor. That's the one with uh, Lon Chaney Jr., right? Yes. And the doctor in Piranha Women, his name is the same name as the doctor in the alligator people. Mark Sinclair, Dr. Mark Sinclair. Uh, so that was that was definitely on purpose. Um, that, and, uh, again, um, uh, <clears throat> the Night Stalker was a, was a big, uh, influence as, as well. I also have to say, I love that you gave a, a little rule to, uh, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, but, uh, Richard, um, Gabe, who's, who's been in a number of your films and I think some of his own films as well. Uh, there, there's some familiar faces here. Richard Gabi. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, we're friends. We've been friends since before Dinosaur Island. And um, it was just a great opportunity for us to do this together. In fact, you know, most of the cast are people who have worked for me before. 
with the uh, exception of the uh, girls who played the piranha women. <clears throat> Almost everybody else in the movie. I think the kid that uh, got killed, the two guys that got killed were guys that had not worked for me before, but everybody else in that movie had been in, in one of my other films. Um, the guy playing the uh, doctor, he was the head of the sort of Taliban in the Steven Seagal movie I did called Sniper. And, uh, you know, Bobby, Bobby Quinn Rice uh, played uh, James Kirk's nephew in Star Trek New Voyages or whatever that is. And he also was the young Buck Rogers in a pilot that we shot years ago uh, in New York where he played Buck Rogers and Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray played his parents. And it took place in, in World War One. So I met Bobby there and, and uh, again, I, I liked what he did. So we've been doing things ever since. So when it comes to the, the women in this film, I, I'm always interested in asking this question is, you know, th there's obviously going to be uh, nudity in, you know, a, a full moon horror movie. So how do you go about directing that? Because I'm assuming, you know, for, for a lot of women that are just getting into the industry, you know, that, that you're kind of vulnerable when you're uh, doing that kind of scene. So how do you maybe walk uh, someone through doing a scene that requires nudity? Well, I think the Cody Renee Cameron uh, helped us tremendously in casting. And uh, she came up with some of the guys and she came up with Keep Chambers and Carrie Overgaard and Saf uh, Putchley. And so for Carrie and Keep, I already knew that this wasn't an issue because I always say right up front, don't let's not cast somebody who has a problem because I don't have time to sit and talk them into it and I don't want to. Um, but you know, we just talk about it. I think if you were to ask one of these girls what it was like, they would tell you it was probably very businesslike. And, um, and it's just, it's, it, the crew was so small, we would normally clear the set of non-essential people, but the crew was so small, every person on the crew was essential. But we just kind of go about our business as, as if it was any other scene. And, uh, and we, we definitely talk, talk about it, but uh, the schedule's not long enough to make a big deal out of it or to waste any time or spend any time chit-chatting or convincing people to do things they don't want to do. So it's really kind of a get on with it sort of attitude. And that seems to work pretty well. And I, like I said, if you spoke to Keep Chambers or Carrie Overgaard, they would tell you that it was strictly, strictly a business-like atmosphere with, with no, no funny business. <laughs> so what's it like working on these sort of fast-paced schedules? You know, I've talked to uh, Jim Wynorski about, you know, him working on films that were, you know, done in, you know, six days. Uh, what was the schedule like for uh, Piranha Woman? And how, how do you manage to shoot it so quickly um, and sort of bring it all together? I mean, I, I'm assuming, you know, for younger filmmakers that could be probably stressful you've done a lot of films though so how have you sort of managed to work on such tight schedules and, and budgets well you know I, I've, I've been in the business awfully long time and and so I mean I've got the background and I have as as Charlie and I went back and forth about things I you know I tell him right up front that I have standards I won't go below and it, it, things have to be a, a certain way. Uh, I can't, I can't lower, um, 
the bar on my shows. And it was shot very, very quickly. It was shot in less time than the 50-foot cam girl. Uh, but at the same time, I look at it and I say, well, you know what, this, there are things I would have done differently. But when I look at the Piranha women, I say, this is pretty much how I would shoot a lifetime thriller. And it looks almost as good. I mean, there are a few things that stick out to me that I might be the only person who thinks about. But I felt like the film, it had camera movement. The lighting was great. The setups were good. The actors didn't come off as being amateurish or corny. If it was supposed to be a doctor, the guy looked like a doctor, you know, um, everybody, uh, everybody. I mean, you know, with the girls, you kind of hope you get lucky because they have extra special, you know, requirements that a regular actor doesn't have because, as you say, they're going to swim around naked and underwater or whatever. But I felt like we got very, very lucky and I was very pleased with the way it turned out with the amount of setups and the, the quality of the work we turned in. I'm very proud of what all of, all of our people did. But I mean, like people say, well, the worst scene, what's the worst scene that you could imagine shooting as a director would be either, because my, my favorite hate type movie, which I've done many of them, is um, an airplane disaster film. Because all of your stars are in an airplane and even though you're shooting a, a conversation between two people, well, this star that's paying, getting paid a lot, he has to sit back there like a background extra because if over the shoulder, you would see if he wasn't there. And you have to then cover all these different people. It, it drives you crazy. Party scene with all the main cast at the end of a film, if they all gather, because they all have egos and this and this and that and that that you have to take into consideration. And a dinner table scene. A dinner table scene is one of the most difficult scenes for most people uh, to direct properly. In Attack uh, of the 60-Foot Centerfold, there's a dinner table scene with 36 setups. You know, it's 36 new and unique camera positions in order to cover what was basically a dinner conversation. But if you've done that your whole life, you don't need to sit there and think about it and scratch your head wondering where to put the camera. I know exactly where to put the camera. Five shots ahead. I've always said to people, I can tell you five shots ahead what's what we're going to film. You'll never see me sit there wondering what we're going to do next or if I'm making the right or wrong decision. And I think that just comes from having, you know, shot 150 films or, you know, three years of one TV series and all 28 episodes. And, you know, just the sheer amount of times I have called action and, and decided on a setup, I think helps tremendously. So since you mentioned um, working with, with actors and, and how that plays into how you're filming, uh, I've always found it interesting. You're a director that has worked with a number of sort of name actors, and you often uh, are shooting these actors um, for a limited amount of days, maybe less than the rest of the cast. Uh, you know, I think of maybe, you know, David Carradine in something like Evil Tunes or some of the movies you've done with actors like Ice-T. Uh, how, how do you sort of uh, manage to shoot a movie with an actor that's on sort of a, a limited number of days on set and, and sort of make it all come together where they really feel like they're part of the film, even if they were only maybe... Uh, on set a limited number of days. Does, does that make sense, that question? I, I've always been curious yeah. about that. Well, you know, it's, all, it's always different. It just depends. Um, probably the, the two shows that 
fell into that category at the, to the greatest extent was uh, Christmas in Vermont, uh, where we had hired Chevy Chase to uh, play this role. And he became ill. And we were already in Buffalo, New York on a limited amount of time. So we went ahead and we shot all of the scenes. We just didn't shoot him. We put a shoulder in here and there to be him. And then when we were back in LA and he was better, we brought him to LA and we replicated the reverse. So we spent one day doing nothing but shooting Chevy Chase in a, a bunch of different setups that matched the ones that we had already filmed with all the other actors. And we brought the leading lady from New York so that in one shot with Chevy, it would be over her shoulder. And when someone came in the door, she turned and she looked. And so at that point, you bought all of the all of the reverses of her that we'd done earlier for that scene. Now it all it all looked because we tied them together. There's no reason for an audience to figure out or think that Chevy and all these other actors weren't always together in these scenes, which they weren't. And we got a call one time. I got a call saying they didn't have a project, but they had Steven Seagal for two days. What could we do? And I said, well, the, you, they, they, you, he was one of those guys who he had to be, literally had to be in every shot. Uh, he wouldn't stand still for you to film the coverage of people around him. So I thought, well, how do we do it? And I said, well, we'll make him a sniper. We'll put him on a rooftop with a spotter, another actor. And then in this big firefight, they'll have to retreat and they leave him and this guy behind. And the guy had taken a bullet to the spine, was paralyzed. So Seagal had to put him into a building where there was a window where he could watch the street. And they kind of waited for the cavalry to show up and rescue them. And uh, Stephen wouldn't show up on set till about 11 a.m. And he would leave at 5 or 5.30. So if you figure it out with lunch in the middle of all that, he probably worked two days and he only put in 10 hours of actually on-set work. Uh, yet he is throughout that film. He's all through that movie. And, it, and just like Chevy was all through that film. And it was because on the days he worked, I never shot the other actors that were talking to him. That was all off-camera voices. And then on another day, I would go back and flip around and shoot the reversals on the other actors in the scene. I mean, Steven Seagal, other than the actor who took the bullet and was his spotter, he only appears physically in a shot with one other actor in the entire movie. And that's a guy who walked around behind him and looked back as they went into a building. And that's kind of how you do it. You have to plan it that way. You have to plot it. You have to know what the limitations are. And you can't give an actor too much to do. Normally, if they're paying a guy for one day, it would probably be eight to 10 pages of dialogue. So the trick is make sure you have a part that shows up at the beginning and the end, and then somewhere in the middle as much as you can, and you break their part up and, uh, and spread, them, spread them out throughout the film. And it seems to work okay. What I find really interesting about a lot of your films is the sort of uh, I would say creative ingenuity. So a movie like Evil Tunes, uh, you know, I, I think you find ways to get around problems with, you know, uh, oh, do we always show the animation? How do we sort of, uh, you know, hide the animation until the end, but we still make the movie feel uh, like there's 
uh, a lot to it, a lot to the the sort of animated monsters. Uh, do you do you think uh, do you enjoy, I guess, the the sort of problem solving element of, I would say, working on these independent movies that you know don't always have the uh, same budgets and and uh, I, I guess perks of a, a studio backed film. Well, the the trick of a lot of this stuff is goes back to like the 1950s sci-fi movies. It's high concept. It's high concept and low execution. Uh, when we went to do Evil Tunes, everybody had turned me down. Roger Corman didn't think that I could do the cartoon animation, which we proved him wrong. And he didn't think we could do it for the price I was asking. We ended up doing it for half of what um, we had asked Roger for. But I thought about that and I said, you know, there's a there's a bunch of slasher movies where you don't see the guy that often. Sometimes it's just his hand or you see the feet and then someone turns and gets hit with an ax or something. And I said, let's do it like that. You know, where the cartoon monster isn't on screen all the time. Sometimes it's just the feet or the hand or something like in a Halloween movie. And um, again, we looked for a way to um, keep the creature uh, on camera as much as we can by having it take over and look like one of the girls. And I think lightning flashes and you can see the cartoon through her face, which I got the idea from um, a movie called I Married a Monster from Outer Space. It had the same shot. And uh, that way the she could be the she could be the monster, which kept, you know, made doing all the action easier than if we tried to stick with a cartoon. But this isn't this was the age before computers and all that animation. There were thousands of hand painted cells. It was done just like a Warner Brothers cartoon. And then, of course, we had to having never done any kind of cartoon animation work before. We had to sit down and figure out how we were going to do the shots how we were going to do them and how we were going to rotoscope them. And uh, it was easy when he would just come over the back of a chair or look around the side of a chair because it was a locked off shot. So the chair edge was like a hard edge. You could just draw the mat. But when he jumped on that girl and he kind of sniffed her and her top popped open, that was a masterwork of um, rotoscoping that a guy named Brett Mixon did. And he did it all on that at that cartoon animation paper that they use for paper tests. And he wrote that whole girl. And uh, it was just it was pretty amazing. But uh, I was very happy with the way it turned out. I mean, everybody told me not to do it. I'm glad I didn't listen to them, which is one of the things that I normally do is not listen to people when they tell me I can't do something. But uh, I think the end result was OK. So one of the things I've always loved about watching your movies, and I, I've been watching them for a long time, uh, you know, going back to when I was you know, a wee little lad, but, you know, a lot of your movies end up introducing me to actors that I wouldn't have otherwise known, you know? So when I was growing up and I first saw The Tomb, that was my introduction to Cameron Mitchell. When I first saw Biohazard, that was my introduction uh, to Aldo Ray. And then you have all those great uh, little roles for John Carradine in a lot of your movies. What was it like working with... Uh, some of the sort of um, legends of, of Hollywood's yesteryear, because I, I know uh, I've heard some interesting stories over the years about Carradine and, and Aldo Ray and Cameron Mitchell and the sort of issues they would have at times just in their personal lives, but they're sort of these larger than life personalities still. Well, I, I grew up in the drive-in 
And I always used to say that if you made an impression on me at the drive-in, I would try to find that person later and hire them. And they used to kid me and say I did my casting out of the cemetery. <laughs> and uh, we, because we, some of the actors we would hire would then become very famous again, like Russ Tamblin and Martin Landau. They would get, like Martin Landau was nominated for an Oscar the very next film after I worked with him. Not that I had anything to do with it, but it caused people to make the joke that if you worked for me, your career would either be revived or you would die because a lot of actors died right after working for me as well. So, but I, I hired people who I was a fan of. You know, I had Hunts Hall from the Bowery Boys. That was a big favorite for me. And um, like you said, Aldo Ray and John Carradine, who I was a huge, huge John Carradine fan. And Lee Van Cleef, who I was also a huge fan of. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of great uh, uh, people. And, yeah, they were, some of them were kind of weird. Some of them were kind of strange. Some of them would be on the wagon and then fall off the wagon partway through the show or they wouldn't show up. You'd have to go find them or, or whatever it was. But, you know, it was kind of like a mixture of being a fan and having the ability to make fan things happen, you know, instead of just thinking about the movies that I liked with Cameron Mitchell, I was able to see him show up and, and ask me what I wanted him to do next, which I thought was pretty cool. I also love how you would have, uh, you know, I felt like you almost had a sort of, your your Freddle and Ray stock players at times, you know, like like sort of how you know the Ed Wood movies would have uh, Paul Marco and Conrad Brooks. A lot of your movies would have uh, sort of reoccurring casts, you know, like Brink Stevens or uh, Robert Quarry, uh, Count Yorga, who I always enjoyed in your movies. Well, the the thing about if I had any sort of a stock company, I had them because they they could act, not necessarily because they were friends of mine, but. They were good actors. And if you're gonna work fast on a limited budget, it really helps that people understand you because you're moving very quickly and sometimes you don't have the time to sit there and go into great depth about what their motivation is. But it's good to have people who understand that now is the time to get on with it. And, uh, and that's what I like about a lot of the actors I, I, I worked with is guys like Ross Hagen, or Bob, or Jay Richardson, if you had no time at all, and the sun was going down, and you just, you just had to turn the camera on, you would want Gary Graver as your cinematographer, and you would want somebody like Ross or Jay Richardson or someone like that, because you could throw them in front of the camera, and they would give you something. And whatever they gave you, it would be professional. You would never get a bad, amateurish-looking performance out of them. And if you're working under the gun, that's a real safety net. So, and you know, it's fun to show up on set and see your friends and hang out and have lunch and things like that. And, you know, shoot the breeze. Um, and, you know, I don't, uh, I don't regret it. I think it helped us make a lot of these films, which might've otherwise been not as much fun to do. I'm really glad you mentioned Gary Graver because he's sort of, uh, someone that comes up on my show when I talk to different uh, people that have worked in film. And I think he's extremely underrated. And a lot of times I don't think he got to work um, or, or his films didn't end up being the product that he wanted to, to 
maybe the producers involved and whatnot. I think of movies like uh, Moon in Scorpio and uh, Texas Lightning, but I think he had a real interesting sort of uh, view on like what he wanted out of his movies. And I was wondering if you could speak to that maybe briefly. Well, Gary, Gary, uh, Gary had a quirky sense of humor and he liked unusual things. And, uh, you know, like he, he was obsessed with little people, you know, uh, he just, he was just fascinated by little people. And when we were in, we all went to India and made a Roger Corman movie in India and there would be people, you know, begging for money on the street. And if it was a little person of which there were, Gary would pay them money and then he would sit down and have his picture taken with the little people. And he would make movies. And if he could make a movie and put a, a little person in the movie, he would. And he had a, he had a, in his own films, you know, he had a peculiar vision that was, that was his own. Moon and Scorpio was just a, was just a mess. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I finally did a commentary track about how we made that for a, a British company called 88 Films, I think. Uh, but yeah, Gary had, uh, he had a vision. I'm not always sure I knew what it was, but he had one. And, um, and he loved film. He used to call the producers, he called them the enemy of cinema. And, um, and I would sort of, I would sort of agree. And again, though, he would try to, you know, a lot of people don't realize that he shot part of Enter the Dragon. And he shot part of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, Gary worked on a lot of great movies. He, wor he worked with Orson Welles as well. That was a big one. Uh, Gary, you know, Wells, when Gary hooked up with Orson Welles, Wells was at a point in his life where he couldn't even afford to put a crew together. And Gary, I think, literally called Wells and said, I'll shoot for you. I have my own camera. I have this and this. And so, you know, Orson would use Gary and Gary would shoot Orson's magic show at the old Ivar Theater there in, um, in Hollywood, which was a strip club. But on Sunday mornings, Orson would do magic shows there. And, um, and so Gary was constantly shooting for Orson for a nickel. Uh, and there are all these unfinished bits and pieces of movies and things that Gary and Orson did together. And then there were some films that they actually did get completed. But uh, yeah, he, he was very much into Orson Welles and Welles was very much into Gary's uh, abilities and, and free labor. Orson would call him for almost anything because he knew he wasn't going to pay him. So I just had a, a few more questions here. While watching Piranha Woman, uh, I ended up reminiscing about some of the uh, movies that I was growing up on with uh, the, the, the screen queens of the 80s. And I'm specifically thinking of uh, Linnea Quigley, Brink Stevens, and Michelle Barr. And it's interesting because I think those women uh, have had such longevity. People, you know, really remember those 80s movies with those three scream, scream queens. And there were other scream queens in the 80s, but those three really stood out. And I don't think it's just because they were um, eye candy. I think people like Linnea actually had a really good sense of things like comic timing. And I was wondering if you could speak to that since you've worked with uh, all three of them. I, I think they... Uh, don't get enough credit for their sort of uh, comedic chops and whatnot. Well, you know, those, those, there was a type of movie that came along and there were only a handful of us that were really doing it. There were a lot of people who tried to imitate us, uh, but it really was down to Dave Dakota uh, and myself 
and to some degree, Jim Wynorski. And each one of us had girls that were our favorites that we promoted into, like Michelle. I met Michelle on the tomb and she wasn't known to anybody. Uh, after the tomb, you know, I started using her and of course she became Michelle Bauer, the cult movie actress. Dave was very big with Linnea and he did a lot to try to, you know, keep Linnea at the forefront of these films. And Jim was um, big with Kelly Maroney and uh, Monique Gabrielle. But the thing is, is that this was at a time when the, the home video market was doing so well that we could put a certain amount of money and it was, and these girls had a certain amount of star cachet. Uh, and even if you were only spending like $140,000, you're still spending a lot, 10 times as much as guys are spending now trying to get their foot in the door. And so back in 1987, you know, $140,000, $150,000 would get you a, a pretty decent movie in, in 35 millimeter with a couple stars in it. And uh, you, could be, uh, you could be in business. And I think there was a little window. And when that window closed, so did the, the market for most of these girls' services. And it's because a certain type of film just stopped being made. And we noticed it right around Witch Academy which we did with Michelle and Ruth Collins, but it also had Robert Vaughn and Priscilla Barnes in it. And which Three's company. Yeah. Yeah. And it, which Academy just laid there. And it was at the point where the video stores had become so saturated that they were now being very picky to what they were buying and they were buying bigger movies because they didn't have the shelf space. They didn't need titles to fill the shelves anymore. And so that's the film that I saw that was, to me, that's when it was over for the Scream Queen movie was Witch Academy. And I don't think, while I did put Linnea in a movie called Jacko, Jacko Lantern. Uh, the one that you famously uh, had an audio commentary for that went very uh, weird near the end. <laughs> out on blue, out on Blu-ray right now. Um, but um, that Witch Academy was the last of those type of films that we ever made. So in regards to your career, one thing that has always interested me is that you've always sort of adapted, you know, uh, to the demands of the market. You know, in the 80s, you're working on films like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and The Tomb. And then when the 90s come around, we see this explosion of interest in erotic thrillers. And of course, you end up doing things like Inner Sanctum uh, and uh, Possessed by the Night and I just am curious, how, how have you learned to adapt over the years? Because you've gone from, you know, the, the horror films to the erotic thrillers to, you know, Christmas movies for Hallmark. And you've always adapted with the times in ways that I think are really impressive. I mean, this is not just a hobby for you. This is your, your job. You're a working filmmaker. Well, you know, I've, I've raised four sons uh, on, on my film. I've never done anything but be a director since... Um, I came into the business for reals around 1984. I've never taken another type of job. I mean, I have my own Blu-ray company, uh, but that's more of a hobby. But you, got, you can't mix them together. See, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers was, is not a job I got paid for. That's a movie I paid to make. And those are the films that fall between the real films. You know, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers was not really part of my mainstream career. 
deep space, 1987, $1.5 million film. That's what I was doing for a living. And on the weekends, I would take money that I got paid as a director and I would spend it to make my own little movie so I could own something. I wanted to own the film. I wanted to have the copyright and see if I couldn't make some of the kind of money that they were making off of me. So when you look at those films, that's not, that's not my ongoing career. Those were the hobbyist things I did to stay sane in between commando squads and deep space and like Witch Academy, uh, Witch Academy, all these were gambles where I'd take my paycheck from a real movie and spend them to make something small, but something I could own and have complete say over how it was edited and who was in it and what it was called. But um, like you look at Inner Sanctum, Inner Sanctum was a huge hit. I mean, it was a gold cassette, most rented video in America, and it ran $700,000 for what was basically one house with a couple people running around in it, possessed by the night, and a mind twister with Telly Savalas. That was a, these are million dollar films. All the Treat Williams and Ice T movies were all in the $1.2 million range. But on the weekends or in between films, when I didn't have anything going on, I would take money that I had saved in the bank and I would run out and I would make bad girls from Mars, you know, or evil tunes. But those weren't, those, those were things I gambled and risked my own money on. They weren't things that I, I did in order to pay the rent. Um, the things I did to pay the rent, I never stopped from the time I made the tomb on. I always took the bigger jobs to pay the, to pay the rent, to raise the kids. And in between there, if I could raise and scrape up enough money to make a small movie, I would do it. Uh, although I don't even do that much anymore uh, because it's, the market's so bad, it's very difficult to get your money back out of one of these things now. So I, I just go, I go with the paycheck. I just, I've always considered myself a filmmaker. I'm not a horror filmmaker or an erotic filmmaker. I'm just, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a person who tells a story using a camera. And it doesn't matter what story I'm trying to tell. I just, I apply the same professional technical skill to getting that thing in the can that I would on any other film. And it just, you know, it just seems to work out. The Christmas films I've made have been extremely successful. I'm working on one now and I've already done one this year already. And, you know, the, the thrillers for Lifetime, I've got one on right now. I think that, I don't know if he won yet or not, but the, the, the villain of my film, Killer in My Backyard, is up for an Emmy uh, and I won an Emmy in 2020 and there's not a lot of B-movie filmmakers can say that. So uh, just, just out of uh, out of curiosity how do you how do you get your foot in the door making say um like a Lifetime movie or a Hallmark movie like I, I think there's people that think how does how does Fred Olin Ray or David Ducato how do they go from making movies like Nightmare Sisters uh or, or Hollywood Chainsaw and then they end up um, being able to, you know, direct uh, Lifetime and, and Hallmark movies. So I'm not even saying that in a bad way. I, I think that like people are just curious of, of how do you sort of go from uh, those sort of passion projects that are sort of just made because you wanted to do them to those uh, other films, those made for TV features and whatnot. Well, most of those films that people talk about for me are films that happened 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, Hollywood Chainsaw Hooker is 1987. 
and uh, Nightmare Sisters might have been somewhere around there too. It's a long time ago. And you get to be known uh, as a person who can turn in a, a professional product on a certain amount of time for a certain amount of money that is acceptable to network a television network. And for the producers, it's not about whether you made Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. They're not interested in that. They're interested in how much money they need to spend versus what they can get back and who is the best person to get them there. And I was working for a company called Regent Entertainment who had made Gods and Monsters. And they had a movie that was, and I was producing. Uh, and they wouldn't give me a directing gig. And then a, a movie got into trouble called Ice Spiders for Sci-Fi Channel. And they needed someone to fly to Salt Lake City and take over this movie and get it done by a certain day for a certain amount of money. And uh, the phone rang, they said, could you be on a plane at one o'clock this afternoon? We'll send a car to get you at 11. I'm in my office uh, and I said, yeah, maybe. And, and my wife at the time said, you should take it because then you can show them what you could do for them as a director. I said, okay. So I ran home and packed my bag. They gave me a script in the car. I read it on the plane. And the next day I went in there and I, I didn't shut their show down. I simply rearranged everything and a few people were let go, but I did it. I pulled the whole show together and got them out of there by Memorial Day for the money they wanted. And when I came back, I was offered nuclear hurricane. And and then while I was shooting that, they came and said, do you want to do accidental Christmas? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And I did it and it was a big hit for Lifetime. Still plays. I think it was 2007, still playing. And um, I don't know how I got uh, House of Secrets, but the same producers that put me onto uh, Accidental Christmas and Nuclear Hurricane um, had me do House of Secrets, which again was a was a was a, a hit for for Lifetime. And um, so then I just started uh, doing those. In between them, you know, I don't do just Christmas movies or women's thrillers. I mean, in between them, I made Hatfields and McCoys. I made American Bandits, Frank and Jesse James. I mean, I made Sniper. And um, after oh, midnight, CCL, after midnight's a weekend job. That's one I paid for myself. But we did see snakes with Luke Perry. So, I mean, it's, it's not nonstop lifetime or Christmas. It's it's kind of whatever. I always said that if I didn't have a moral objection to what you were doing in your film, that I was probably the right guy for your movie. Um, I, I don't get on my high horse. Uh, you know, because I'm I'm doing this for a living. But, um, you know, if there's so something about the film that I don't agree with uh, on a personal level, I wouldn't do it. But um, pretty much, you know, I'm kind of a, a work for hire kind of person, but I feel like I probably had one of the more successful careers um, in my peers. Dave Dakota works all the time now. Jim... Not so much, um, but he's been doing uh, these Charlie Band movies, so that's a good thing for him. And he's done some independent stuff like Bigfoot or Bust. You know, he's done he's done some self finance stuff recently. So it's a 
it's uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough business. But I'll tell you, and as I tell my fiance now, uh, nothing will put a certain amount of money in the bank quicker than two weeks on a movie set, and I I stand by that. So so it sounds like, and I'll I'll start wrapping up now. But uh, it sounds like as a director. Uh, it may not be exactly like how actors are because I know some actors worry about getting uh, pigeonholed. It sounds like you sort of uh, just powered through and you're like, well, I've made these horror movies, but you know, I can also get these uh, sort of Christmas movies or thrillers or uh, any other type of movie done. And, and the producers are like, well, if you can do it on a budget uh, you're professional, you know, you've got the job. Well, in television, like I said, nobody, nobody in, in feature films, Everybody always says you're 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 as good as your last review, but in television, nobody cares who the director is. Most of the people who watch my movies could never tell you who the director or writer or producer was. Most of them, most people can't even tell you the name of the movie. If I say, "Oh, well, I did that Christmas movie that was like Groundhog Day, where the girl went home and her best friend's Christmas wedding keeps replaying itself," and they'll go, "Oh, yes, I saw that. I loved it." They couldn't tell you what it was called and they had no clue. Nobody, I mean, I, I sit here today and I will ask you, I mean, nobody knows who directs those episodes of when, when Desperate Housewives. I had a friend who was on Desperate Housewives as the director. Nobody, nobody watching Desperate Housewives knew who the directors were, even though their name's right there on the screen and nobody cared. At, at a certain point in television, it's about what you can do, not about what you have done. And so I don't have to sit and defend myself over Hollywood chainsaw hookers. I can point to 17 successful Christmas movies and 14 women's thrillers for a lifetime. And that's what matters to people. Can you get the job done for them that they want done? It's not what you did in 1987. And that's amazing too. And it's so true because when I went to do Commando Squad, I got an office in Transworld Entertainment and they didn't have enough space. And they said, Fred, you need to share an office with another director who's finishing a show and he's on his way out. You guys need to share this office. So I said, okay, fine. I was literally a kid. I went in the office and set up and the guy sitting across with me was a director named Gordon Hessler. If you know who that is. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, Gordon had done some kind of Shogasugi ninja film, and it was almost the last film Gordon ever made. And I thought, I, I would give my little finger, you could cut off my little finger if I could have Gordon's resume. I mean, he had directed Betty Davis, he had worked for Hitchcock, he made The Oblong Box and Cry of the Banshee and Scream and Scream Again. I mean, he, he directed The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, a Harryhausen film. And now, now here's this like 28 year old kid and you're having to share your office with him. And it didn't matter to them that Gordon had this tremendous resume. At that day, having me in that office was more important than having Gordon in that office. And I felt guilty about it, but I realized, don't get cocky. Don't believe your own publicity. Don't get too full of yourself and don't think you can reinvent the wheel, you know? If you're gonna survive in this business, you gotta be ready to kind of go along with what comes along. You know, I always said that, or you can put your foot down and refuse to compromise. And you can also consider funding your next movie by mortgaging your house, but I wouldn't recommend it. 
last thing I'll say here is that uh, I, I believe you've also helped a lot of um, people sort of get into film. Uh, I, I don't know uh, how true this is, but I've, I've heard that you helped provide the camera uh, for Tarantino's first short film. And I know you've also uh, helped um, uh, another guest on this show, uh, Henrik Kuto, uh, who does a lot of different uh, films from all kinds of different genres. And I loved his uh, Bigfoot TV series that you were involved with. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, what would your advice be to sort of people trying to get in the door, especially younger filmmakers? Uh, to me, it's all craft. Uh, Boggy Creek was my project. And I went to Henrik and I said, uh, this is what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this series. If you want to do it, I'll give you the money. And you can make this Boggy Creek series. And I just did the same thing with Todd Sheets. And we haven't actually even announced it yet. We just finished it. We just finished the poster art. I'm not- Todd's a, been a guest on the show too. So I'm excited to hear that. <laughs> well, I, what I look for in these guys is, a, is, is some kind of finesse in their craft. If your stuff looks amateurish, I don't think throwing more money at you will make it less amateurish. Um, I look for people who look like they've got something and maybe just they need a little push or they need a little advice or there's maybe something that I can- advise them with sort of a spiritual hand on their shoulder to uh, take them and elevate them to another level. Because I never make any money off of these things. I have funded so many young filmmakers, only a very, very small amount of them have ever made a show that made me money or even the money back that I gave them to start with. Uh, and yet I still do it. I don't know why, but I do. There's something about it that I like and I keep hoping for a hit. Um, I don't think Boggy Creek, Boggy Creek might make its money back someday. I don't think so, but who knows? Um, the Steve Latshaw movies I made, Jacko and Dark Universe and Biohazard, they were all made on film and they all did pretty well. Uh, but for the most part, I haven't had a great amount of luck with that, but I still, you know, if I see a young filmmaker who has what I think is talent, who might just need a little guidance, uh, then sometimes I'll get involved with them. Yeah. What, what, what would your biggest advice be to, because I have a lot of young filmmakers that listen to this show. So what would your advice be to them if they're just wanting to get into film and they're just wanting to get into the filmmaking process? But my advice is the very advice that they don't want is learn your craft. They sell cameras now and you can turn it on and with the lights on in your living room, you can get an image and it'll actually record sound. And then all of a sudden everybody thinks they're ready to uh, make their first feature film. And to me, it's all about craft. And that's, that's what will get you hired. Um, you know, I always say to people, if time isn't money, which it isn't for a lot of people making their own little films, time is not money, then why don't you have your over the shoulder shot? Why don't you have the hand insert that you need here? You know, why, why don't you have all these things? Because it wouldn't cost you. For me, I've got to make a decision every day about what I can shoot and what I've got to let go to stay on budget and on time. But if time is, is not money, then you need to be, you need to be better uh, at your technical skills. Get your coverage right. Don't be crossing the line. You know, there's a bunch of stuff. I, I was... I'm actually thinking about making some kind of an online film school. They have so many things that nobody, nobody understands, like matching 
matching lens, matching distance. You know, if a person stands right next to the camera, off camera for their dialogue, you need to know what, what lens are you shooting that one person that the, that's on camera and how far that person is from the camera. So that when you turn around, you use the same lens at the same distance and the person who's now standing off camera doesn't stand two feet to the side when the other person stood right next to the lens. You know, these are the things where one person looks like they're almost looking in the lens and the person they're talking to looks like they're looking off to their backyard or something. And it's just, there's just, it's, it's a great world out there. There's so much wonderful stuff that people can play with and it's very cheap to do now. I would say concentrate on making the most professional, polished looking project that you can, even if it's a short film. For me, if I saw a person's short film that was polished and looked like a professional made it, I would much rather see that than I would a, a badly made feature film because the short film would maybe make me think, wow, you know, if this guy just had a little advice and someone with their hand on their shoulder a little bit to guide them, they could maybe take this talent and use it on a bigger project. But if your bigger project is awful, I, 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 don't, I don't need, there's no market for me anyway in a, in a badly made, uh, you know, independent show. Well, Fred Olin Ray, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, if there's anything you want to plug or uh, if anything else you want to say about Piranha Women, uh, you know, please let it out there. And also uh, people should je definitely check out uh, Retro Media, get a copy of Jacko on Blu-ray. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Fred, because I, I actually kind of enjoy that movie. I think it's kind of a, a fun little feature, e even if uh, it is a shit pickle. So thank you, know, you so it, much. It has a it has a big fan base. You would be surprised. So I'm 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 happy to restore it. We had to do it by by hand. It was restored by hand. And my listeners can watch Piranha Women at uh, Full Moon Features, right? Yeah, give it a give it a look. It you know it goes by really fast. Uh, uh, it's very very quickly paced, and it's fun. And if you like girls, it's even more fun. And thank you again, Fredel and Ray. Thank you. They came just for the weekend. You clean up the house real good for the new owners. I pick you up Monday morning and you each get a hundred bucks. But this weekend... This house has a long history of mayhem and madness. Just might last a lifetime. Because this house is not a home to live free. Uh, sure. And the place is really coming to life. Something funny's going on there. He's got a taste of the good life. Remember the drawing of the beast? It's gone. And he's on a quest for flesh. Maybe she's in trouble. Every door to another dimension. You stop with the freaking beast? This is reality. Every step forward is a step backward. I've come to destroy you. And every room is a room with a view. Don't do that! You're looking for trouble. 
no telling who will drop in. This place is so spooky. I'll drop dead. Johnson and the girls. Evil tools. Don't tell me you kids don't enjoy a good cartoon. Evil tools. It's a scream. does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fred Olin Ray, a man who has seen and done it all when it comes to the world of independent filmmaking. And of course, you should definitely check out his past films. Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers is a favorite of mine, as is Evil Tunes, Beverly Hills Vamp, and so many others, as well as, of course, his latest Available now for streaming on Full Moon Features, Piranha Women. Don't get them wet, because they bite. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. When you work in Hollywood, you learn fast that there's just two kinds of girls in a town like this. The sweet, shy, innocent ones. You know, the ones you want to take home to mom. And then there are the other kind. The ones you just want to take home. Sometimes they like to play a little rough, but then these aren't your average girls. And this isn't your average movie. If you haven't figured out by now, there's something for everybody. Well, almost everybody. Action, romance, and a cast of thousands. It's Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. These girls charge an arm and a leg. I think it's time somebody cut you down to size, Jack. Have you ever considered therapy? going to enjoy splattering you. Hostile. Very hostile. What a great set. Yeah, I know.
Hollywood chainsaw hookers. It's a comedy that'll leave you in pieces. Smile, 